Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We periodically pick up the book of Hebrews together, this epistle, which is counted as one of the general epistles in the New Testament. And every time we come to it, we remind ourselves that we don't know the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. The book is historically associated with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The the earliest early church record that we have of its authorship, it is listed as a Pauline book. But that's a strange thing when compared to the rest of the Pauline corpus. Paul always begins by saying uh, that he's Paul and he's an apostle and he he begins with some sort of Trinitarian benediction and and he ends with uh, personal remarks and salutations. There's a certain pattern to his epistle arguments. He gives lots of uh, theoretical, theological argument at the front and then at the back end, lots of application and practice. And this book doesn't outline in that way. And if you take the epistle to the Hebrews and, and you put it into a, into a computer and you compare and contrast the vocabulary used in this book with the rest of the Pauline corpus, you find uh, some large differences in frequency of the use of terminology. And as you bore down a little farther and you see that, that the certain topics being dealt with in Hebrews have overlap with the topics of the Apostle Paul and his epistles at key points, even at those locations, There are distinctions in vocabulary. Oh, they're both talking about the same thing, but they're talking about it in slightly different ways. And so the church has, down through the years, had many speculations about who who is the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. And here is an example in the New Testament where the Lord teaches us about why books are canonical and why other books are not. For you see, this particular book while it is bracketed with or under the umbrella in the mind of the church concerning the Apostle Paul's ministry with his, uh, his ministry, his wider's ministry's approbation, it clearly has the marks of inspiration. It, ha- it has do- Christ-honoring doctrinal content. It, it leads us to understand more of what the Bible says elsewhere. And so it's in continuity with the Old Testament and with the New Testament. It also is a book which has been fruitfully used in the lives of the people of God. Not only is it uh, objectively in line with the rest of the Bible, and therefore has the indication that it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, it also is used by the Holy Spirit as He takes these words and He applies them to the lives of His people. And so inspiration is linked with illumination by the ongoing work and ministry of the third person of the Trinity. In other words, God has given us abundant evidence and reason within the text and through his use of the text so that our discomfort or itching to know right now precisely who the author was is able to be satisfied as we wait on the Lord and he eventually will make that plain. Chapter 6 of the epistle to the Hebrews is one Uh, which has brought great fright in the life of the church. But the good news this morning is, is that all the scary part was uh, the last time we were together around this book. And today we have words of encouragement and assurance in our Christian life from the latter half of Hebrews chapter 6. So let's look together. 
Hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9 through the end of the chapter. This is God's inspired and therefore an errant word. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. May God bless his reading, the reading of his word to our lives. Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that your word, true and sure, would now be taken by the Holy Spirit and applied to the way that we think and feel and live. Lord, we know that this time of preaching is one in which there is not just a man talking, but rather there is the Holy Spirit working, working in our hearts and lives, working in the lives of those sitting near to us and across the sanctuary. We pray, O Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would change us and make us more to more and more to be like Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, some weeks ago we had very strong warning from Hebrews chapter 6 against falling away from our profession of faith. And we noted that members of the visible church are blessed by being able to gather together to gather around the Word, to enjoy in the public worship of God, the reading and preaching, the singing and praying, and even the seeing of God's Word and the two sacraments that He's appointed. Oh, the, the blessings and benefits of fellowship, of iron sharpening iron, of us being not just of encouragement about how our ball teams have done recently, but encouragement to our souls and to our Christian lives. These are great blessings and benefits that come from being in the visible church. But sadly, 
all who enter into the gates of the visible church by professing faith in Christ, by sharing something of a, of a story about how they themselves have come to look to Him alone for their salvation, sometimes in the long haul it seems that there are those whose profession changes, whose life and whose testimony ends up veering off the path And so that testimony which was deemed as credible at one time no longer is. They fall away from their profession of faith in Christ and testimony in Him. Such apostasy is heartbreaking and tugs at the strings of the very core of our being. But it teaches us an important and sobering lesson, which is no Christ, no hope. No Christ, no hope. And so we have learned from Hebrews chapter 6. We have learned the hard way. We have learned by being taken by God the Holy Spirit out to the woodshed and paddled. We have been warned. We have been shocked even that we might hear the comforting and encouraging words, though we speak in this way yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. And so it's my joy this morning to come to you with good news. With good news that the Lord, in His Word, in this particular portion, right on the heels of such hard language, lest we be overwhelmed by fear and grief, the Holy Spirit comes in the next breath and speaks words of assurance and comfort and encouragement to our souls. And boy, don't we need that in our Christian lives. We need the Lord's blessing and encouragement. For believers in this passage can have assurance of hope in Christ. Believers can have assurance of hope in Him. Now the text reminds us that assurance comes in a variety of different ways. Oftentimes... Modern American evangelicalism has thought that assurance, uh, well, that's sort of like peanut butter and jelly. It automatically comes between the two pieces of bread. One of my children recently told me, or confessed, I should say, that they ate two peanut butter sandwiches for, for lunch. And as they chewed, they found peanut butter and jelly and all the good things of life just there. But you know, assurance is not sort of slipped in the middle as if you automatically receive it and enjoy it immediately upon a profession of faith. Some of us who uh, have some gray hairs or, or perhaps some years uh, of walking with the Lord in Christian testimony could tell you about, there are, about the fact that there are times in which you are walking high upon the mountains of God and you are feeling close to heaven And it's like you can reach out and touch the angels and cherubim and seraphim. And then there are other times in your Christian walk where the Lord in His providence lays you low and you walk through the valley of shadow and you feel very much alone and God is a million miles away as far as your emotions are concerned. Oh, Hebrews chapter 6 reaches out and encourages us with the fact that assurance is not something that's just automatic and just always continues on autopilot. It is a blessing that God Himself gives us, and it comes in a variety of different ways. 
all of the warnings given in the first half of this chapter, they are not meant to terrify the humble. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Here the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is describing his audience, which is thoroughly steeped in its understanding of the Old Testament, of the fact that Jesus is greater than angelic powers, that He's the very Son of God, that He has become incarnate, that He might suffer and die and so give propitiation for our sins, that He might drink the wrath of God to its dregs for us. Oh, this particular epistle which unfolds the unique priesthood of Jesus and and the ongoing hope of heaven that we have in Him. This particular epistle not only warns us, but it comforts and encourages us with words like, Beloved, in your case, better things. You know, in in our lives as we grow up, there are many occasions on which mom and dad scold us, warn us, threaten us, and cause us to tremble. We all have those memories from our childhood. I I can remember meeting an absolutely immovable object as a child. My father, sitting at the table, he said, you ask me to cook that oyster, now eat it. I can remember occasions on which uh, I had been disobedient. I know it's hard to believe, but I had had lied. I I can remember snitching something a time or two. And and the the thing that's burned into the synapses of my mind is, is my futile attempt to negotiate with my father when he told me to pull my pants down and it was time for a little spanking and it was going to hurt him more than it was me. I, I sought to cut a deal right then. Dad, I wouldn't want to hurt you any further than I have. Can't we work something out here? Be quiet and bend over. You know, God, like a parent, gives us warnings, gives us shots across our bow, but but those are given to bless us and hedge us in, to to protect us from, from great and serious harm. The intent is not to terrify those who are humble, And so it comes as good news that we hear inspired words saying, though we speak in this way, we feel sure in your case of better things that go with salvation. It's always, it's always hard to hear a warning. Our egos push back. We, we think we know better than everyone else. But God is a good father to us. And He doesn't stop speaking in spite of our being a little hard of hearing at times. His warnings are actually a sign and seal to us of His fatherly love and care. The most difficult time of of life is not when the Lord slaps you halfway across the room, spiritually speaking. It's when you find yourself stewing in the unpleasant, juices of your own disobedience and you pray to heaven and it's as if your prayers bounce off the ceiling and back into the pot. The Lord is showing us here His fatherly love and care even as He gives us warning strong 
and sure. And also ministering to the saints can bring or lead to assurance. You see in the next breath he says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and the serving of the saints as you still do. Now don't make a mistake about it. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews, who for almost six full chapters now has told us about the superior status of Jesus Christ, that He's the incarnate Savior, that He is the one with whom we need union and communion for salvation true and sure. He hasn't thrown away the first five chapters of His book. He's not turned the gospel on its head and and now reverted to some idea of works righteousness, as if you just serve people enough and you're nice enough to them, then everything will be fine between you and God. No. What he's doing is a very delicate theological operation. He is, he is telling each and every one of us, he is telling you that the proof of the pudding of your profession of faith in Christ is not just in the ringing of the words that come out of your mouth that you believe Jesus is Lord and, and He is your Savior, but it's also in the living. It's in how God the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and effectually calls us and applies all the blessings and benefits of the cross of Christ to us, is the one who sanctifies us, who changes us progressively in the image of Jesus, that the same God who calls us saints and beloved ones and holy ones, He is also the same God who works in the interior of our lives and makes us to be more of what we should be. The fact that we work and that we love the saints and that we serve them is a means through which God encourages us in the assurance of our salvation. You know, this is a, is a basic principle for Christian living. Do good for your neighbor, and you feel better. You feel better about helping them. You feel better even about yourself as you go lifting out a helping hand. By giving, what happens? In that strange and amazing way, we always seem to receive more than we give. And so this principle of life is a, is a mirror of a spiritual reality that as we use the gifts that God has given, as we exercise those spiritual muscles that He has endowed each and every one of us with, not just to serve ourselves, not just even to serve our families, but to serve others in our community, in our church, as we exercise the spiritually given gifts that He has provided we find that in return, we receive assurance and confidence and that feeling of greater well-being in our relationship with the Lord because we have in front of us, as we care and listen and weep and aid one another, we see there before us unfold evidence of a life changed by a holy God. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing on kingdom work? How is kingdom work in your life? Have you sown the seeds of love and concern for the saints? Do you invest time in the lives of others, other believers? Or are you narrowly 
keeping those gifts and graces in their usefulness just for yourself. Oh, what a joy for us to hear these words. When the Lord comes again and the new heavens and new earth in order to judge all flesh and His people, to hear the words, though we speak in this way, in your case, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation, not overlooking your work and love that you've shown for His name in the serving of the saints, which you still do. You know, there's a certain uh, pastor for outreach and discipleship on the church staff, and if you want some more kingdom things to do, just come see him. We have a English as a Second Language course, and we are overwhelmed by the number of people in the community who have come and have crossed the threshold of the church door in order to learn our language. And in learning our language, they get an opportunity to rub up against and interact with Christians, perhaps some of them for the first time. And they get to be introduced to basic Christian ideas and values as a devotion is given to them and a prayer to open their time together and as reference to God is naturally made by Christians as they always do in their life. Or perhaps perhaps foreign language scares you a little bit, even English, and you would be happier working in the kitchen or, or helping the fellowship committee in some practical way to foster the fellowship of the saints together, it's not just a kitchen duty or cleanup. It is with a spiritual end or purpose in mind. It's a way of serving others that you might serve the blessing of Christ in their life. Do you love kids? We got a nursery. We could use some help. Uh, Can you sit and watch and smile? Then you can be an aide in Sunday school. There are plenty of places where we need other eyes and hands to help us. If if you have blue jeans and a sweatshirt, the youth might even let you do something. It's, It's a wonderful occasion, is it not, in the life of the body of a church. Not one of those boutique situations where it's all just one little generation and there's nobody older, there's nobody younger, it's it's just some little select club. No, a congregation with with those that are crying as newborns and and those that are wise with gray hairs on their head and everything in between. Ministering to the saints gives us assurance of Christian hope. And we're also reminded by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews to imitate faith and patience in other Christian lives. Verse 12 tells us, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now this is a general principle that is laid down and then it's illustrated from uh, earlier redemptive history. But the general point certainly does apply. We learn from one another. Your walk with Christ is a challenge and an encouragement to mine that I might be more like Jesus because I see in the way that He works in your life and uses you in the lives of others, I see more of how I can be one who forgives others that have wronged me. And I can be one who doesn't always have to speak back immediately when I see something wrong or unhappy. That I can be one not to jump to judgment, but to withhold it 
and to bear even with the sins of others. Oh, faith in God and patience with others and with the timing of His providence. This too can bring assurance of hope in our Christian lives. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews points to Abraham in the next breath. Abraham was a great man of faith. God spoke to him and Abraham listened. He followed God. He followed God to a far off land. He went to where he did not know because he trusted in the one with whom he went. Oh, he didn't go alone. He went in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God blessed him every step of the way. It may sound strange to you, but there's a backwards sort of lesson that we learn from Father Abraham. You know, he wasn't always the most patient fellow. Maybe that reminds you of your own father. Not the most patient fellow, but boy, did God in his providence teach him the lessons of patience. Do you remember Hagar? Do you remember the disastrous debacle with Hagar? And do you remember that God taught him that he had an enormous lack of patience and faith in him? And in teaching him a lesson through bitterness... He transformed and made a man who would be the first to tell you and me where he's standing here in this pulpit. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Have confidence in Him. You can trust the Lord through thick and thin no matter what the world looks like on the outside. You. You need to trust in and wait on the Lord. And God delights in faithful waiting. He wants you to learn to wait on Him. That's the reason why He doesn't always answer your prayers in the instant that you make them or in the moment before. Sometimes He does that in order to encourage you that you might not lose heart. But in patience and in waiting with faith-filled patience, you reap a crop of assurance and hope in your Christian life. Oh, assurance of hope comes in many different ways. And our text also presses us on a central fact, which is assurance of hope comes ultimately from God. You see, it is God who has made the covenant promises to Abraham and also to us. Verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Here, we're reminded under inspiration that God promised Abraham blessings, covenant blessings and the covenant of grace that he had foreshadowed and prepared for in the pages earlier in Genesis. And now Abraham receives those promises and the hope of them. God makes promises all the time. He makes promises in the Ten Commandments. He tells us, does He not, that there will be blessings to the thousands, to the thousands of generations of those that love Him. He tells us that if we will honor our father and our mother, our days will what? Be long in the land and that we will know the blessing that God alone can give in our lives. 
And then there are those covenant of grace promises that, that just absolutely overwhelm us. Our first father, Adam, he heard God say, even in the midst of the cursing of the serpent, and even in the midst of the cursing of his wife, he heard God clearly say, He, the seed of the woman, shall crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That Jesus Christ was promised there in the earliest chapters of Genesis, in the first giving of the gospel, that all was not lost, that he would not die and have no relationship evermore with God because of his sin, but that a Savior would come. And Noah, a man more closely familiar with judgment than any other man in human history, a man who heard the rains come down and the floods come up, a man who was haunted, no doubt, by the banging and screaming of those on the outside as they suffered the just wrath of God for their wicked rebellion against Him. Oh, Noah. Noah had the promise of God that God would never again destroy the earth in that way. That God would bring His covenant promises to fruition and even set a bow in the cloud. A sign, a covenant sign to encourage us all to hope in the Lord for our salvation. Oh, Abraham had these other promises come before him and doubtless knew of them. But Abraham heard a fresh word from the Lord that in the covenant of grace, he would bless him and he would bless his family after him. That down that family line, there would be the coming of the seed of the woman, the seed of promise, and the salvation that was a blessing to all the earth. God, God made a promise and in the giving of it, there was comfort and assurance because we can trust in God. And the author reminds us that God swore by Himself, not by anyone else. You know, when you're young and growing up, you may not, you may not explain it in detail to your parents or to yourself, but you know that in your neighborhood there's something of a pecking order. Before I knew really what chickens were, because I grew up in the suburbs, I, I innately could feel the pecking order. All the children in the neighborhood, we, we played together every night. There was Caroline across the street and Billy around the corner and, and Stevie in the other direction. And you know, the strange thing is, is that they all still look about the same on Facebook. But I distinctly remember being in Mary's yard across the street and the whole line of them, one after another, single file, with me just a few steps away, and they said, Duncan Rankin, Duncan Hines cake mix, so light and tender you can beat him up. And one after another would come. This may explain a lot about my adult life and ministry. So I encountered what a pecking order was and could feel that. And there was always somebody who's top on the totem pole. Let me tell you, it was not me. But on the top of the pecking order in all the universe is the Lord God Almighty. And He has no one above Him by whose name to swear and promise to you that His promises will be kept. And so He swears by the greatest that there is, by His own name. He promises you in His own name 
that his, that his assurances are yea and amen. And so we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You see, what God is like on the outside is perfectly symmetric with what God is like on the inside. He is to you as He is in Himself. He is to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the face of the Son, do we not see the Father? In the pouring out of the blessings of the Holy Spirit, do we not know both the Son and the Father revealed? And that is what they are like. That is what the triune God is like. You don't need to go to bed at night wondering if there's some God behind God or or some some upside-down principle in Him that will undo everything that He said. His Word is true and sure because He is true and sure. He is loving. He is just. He is powerful. He is knowledgeable. He is all of those things. And He is all of those things at once. And so, He is reliable and truthful in all that He does and all that He says. His Word is sure. And so, as He gives promises, He gives you assurance, believer. He gives you comfort and a firm chair to sit in, not a rocky one that might throw you to the ground when it breaks, a true and sure and firm place to sit and worship before Him and to live your Christian life. You see, God, in His swearing by His own name, swears for us and for our blessing and benefit. His is not some arbitrary voice coming down a mountain. His word to us is His word for us. And so His word to you is His Word for you, for your blessing and benefit, for your growth in grace, for your assurance and encouragement to greater obedience in Christ-likeness. He does this for you. It's a part of His great covenant of grace. And His telling of us what He's going to do for us is a source of endless reassurance and comfort You know, after one of your children has had a very rough day, maybe everyone lined up in the neighborhood and jumped them too. Maybe a teacher scolded them. Maybe maybe a friendship was strained or broken. Maybe they are feeling all alone in the world. They want to have you hold their hand and pull them up into your lap and surround them with the arms of your love and reassure them with your comfort and with your promises of never leaving them or forsaking them. And that is what God does for each one of us. He does it better than any father or mother, sister or brother could ever do in our lives. We find real, hard, firm, reliable assurance in Him. God swears for us for our blessing and benefit. And there's also a sense in which this assurance, which comes from God and comes in a variety of different ways that He appoints, 
that it is set, also set before us. Assurance of hope is set before us. Look at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, in which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold fast, we are exhorted by this inspired text. In other words, we are to take hold of it. We are to reach out. We are to grasp it. And we are to hold on for dear life. I can remember a, a poster in a college room. Maybe, maybe one of you have it in your bedrooms uh, among the kids. Uh, and it's a, a big, large rope with a knot at the end. And there is this cat looking wet and distressed and with just barely the claws is hanging on it. It just says, hang in there, baby. We are to reach out and to grasp, not a rope, not in desperation, but to reach out and grasp that which is offered and guaranteed and delivered to us by God. Assurance of hope and encouragement in our Christian life. The author goes on in verse 19 to describe this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You see, the good news of the gospel in Hebrews 6 is that the anchor that God provides, that is anchored back in His promises, back in His character, back in His Word, that that anchor holds, that it never lets go, that though the winds of life and and even our own knuckle-headed disobedience at times pull against it, that God's anchor holds in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're secure and steadfast in Him, no matter what we have faced or what we have done. Let me digress just for one moment and speak to those of you who have perhaps grown up in Christian homes and and you look back and, and you have trouble remembering a day when you didn't love the Lord and follow His ways. That is not an uncommon testimony to hear among covenant children. And it's always a joy and a blessing to hear such a testimony of faith in Christ. But you know there's always another side to the coin in a fallen and finite world. And what it means for those of you that have grown up looking and trusting in Christ as far back as you can remember is that all of your sins that you've ever committed, they're Christian sins. They're wanderings away from the Lord that you yourself have committed as one who at the same time named the name of Christ and looked to Him for your salvation. Part of the assurance that is given here is that it's not only for the sins that we commit before we come to faith in Christ, but even for the sins that we commit after we come to faith in Christ. Even the sins that we have committed this morning and will commit for the rest of this day, we have an anchor true and sure in Christ Jesus our Lord. And His blood is not just sufficient to wash away sins of the past, but also sins of the present and sins of the future. Union and communion with Him is life forevermore. 
And so the assurance that we enjoy must always be tied to Christ who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our union and communion with Him and the means of grace that He provides as channels of blessing and encouragement, those direct means of grace through His Word read and preached and sung and prayed and seen, they are there laid out by Him for us to enjoy and to draw strength from. We must lay a hold of them and use them rightly, coming, for example, to the preaching and reading of the Word with the same kind of attitude that we profess together using the the catechism earlier this morning. And our anchor, our anchor will then hold because it's rooted and grounded in Christ our Lord. And even those secondary means of grace, which also should never, should never be neglected, of Christian love and sacrifice and fellowship one with another, all of the body life aspects of Christian living and congregational life, all of those are important means and channels as well because they are ways in which the Word read and preached and sung and prayed and seen is expressed among us in application. Oh, faithful attendance at worship, Bible reading, meditation and prayer each day. These things are foundational and important as is fellowship in the life of the saints together because it's not just our life together. You know, you're much better looking than I am and much more important. But it doesn't matter about you or me nearly as much about the fact that the bond and union that we have together is our union and communion in Christ. He is what matters. And so in His holding on to us and in our holding on to Him and in fellowship with Him, we have fellowship one with another. Our hope and our assurance of Christian living is always tied to the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look to Jesus and find your hope and your assurance in Him. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that You would bless and strengthen us in Christ our Lord. As we tremble before You as we think about our sins, as we tremble before You as we remember and see and hear others that have walked away from their profession of faith, we ask that You would ever draw near to us. We ask, O Heavenly Father, that we might see and feel the surety of Your promises grounded in Your triune life and that we might thank You forevermore for the blessing and benefits of those that we receive in the Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.